Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, parents. It's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast. And in this week's episode, we're going back to uh, our Q&A format. And so thank you for emailing in questions. We'll get going. The first one I have today is, my nine-year-old daughter, when upset, can't express her feelings. I don't know why I'm crying. I try not to push, but I want to help her navigate her feelings. Their second part of this is, years ago, she was struggling with something, and when she finally succeeded, I said, way to go, you did it. She cried and said, don't cheer for me. So I'm going to take those, even though you wrote them in together, I think they're they're both about uh, emotions, but I think they're different explanations, different advice here. So the first thing is, a nine-year-old who's upset and can't uh, express her feelings is, is not uncommon in the sense that uh, emotions are... Um, and our psychological processes behind them are largely pre-conscious, and it takes quite a bit of development of a child's emotional intelligence to link together the words and the language with the experience that they're having. So she's not there yet. Ways that we can help with emotional intelligence, again, is to put those language tags on. So it might be that um, you might volunteer some words that she could identify. That could be just verbally. It could say, you know, are you feeling disappointed? Are you feeling frustrated? So she might be able to recognize the name of the word if you say it. And uh, if that doesn't work, you can also have emojis that have like facial expressions and you could download on the internet, just Google it. There'll be a whole sheet of emojis and she could like point point to the different ones. Is this best to describe how you're feeling? Is this one best to describe how you're feeling? And then you can find words that go with that expression. So the more she has language for the feeling, the more her emotional intelligence will grow. 
But the other thing to realize, and there's a whole podcast that I really recommend that you go back and listen to in a previous episode with Paul Rasmussen talking about emotions. And from an Adlerian perspective, we talk about the fact that emotions are a biological, uh, play a biological function for us. They are the fuel in which um, moves us closer to our psychological uh, goals. And so, you know, if your psychological goal is to win and take charge, it would make sense that you would generate the uh, emotion of anger to to want to want to fight and win. And so, you know, she's got tears. I'm not quite sure tears can come up for a bunch of different reasons. They can come up for sadness, embarrassment. There's, you know, different things, but she's certainly not in a position of of strength here. So I would say as a parent, we want to make sure as our kids are working through their emotional intelligence and emotional development and their proper psychological progression towards something that's more what we say common sense instead of some private logic, like we don't want her to develop a private logic that I'm a victim and I can't manage. Um, that that wouldn't be a, a healthy script for life. But I also want to just, you know, recognize that the way we respond to tears is also going to, the, you know, the social reaction to a kid's emotionality also gives them information about whether there's a utility in staying upset, whether there's a utility in, in feigning that you can't manage, whether there's a utility in saying, poor me. So I'm very conscious of my reaction and re- my responses. I would certainly never pity a child. I always want to send the message they can manage. I also don't want them to manage their emotions because I don't like their emotions. I'm the adult in this situation. I want to let them know that you can have all the emotions that you want. You don't need to be calm and emotionally regulated because I don't like to see you crying because I want you to be happy. You're my child. And and so I'm upset when you're upset. I have to be the adult here. So I want to hold and contain the space to say all emotions are okay here and not to give some secondary buy off that, you know, if you're teary and emotional, you get an extra cuddle and an ice cream cone and, you know, we'll extend your bedtime and I can lie in your bed with you because you're having a bad day and all these other secondary gains. I don't think that's helpful at all. I can certainly be compassionate and say, sir, you're upset in the moment. Uh, let me know how I can be helpful. But I'm pretty much going to just trust that they can g- get along with the day. And that's okay that some people are sensitive. And it's okay. I know lots of people just cry at the drop of a hat. And that's okay. You can be teary. You can be wear your emotions on your sleeve. That's not a bad character trait. Um, I'm not really seeing where it's sort of getting her into trouble. So hopefully that'll give you a, a couple of things to work on as she progresses and ages. But what I find interesting in the next part that can add to our conversation, knowing that it's the same child, when she said that years ago, when you said, way to go, you did it. And she says, don't cheer for me. Well, she doesn't have the, again, the language to understand the psychological process, but she certainly had the emotions and enough to say, I didn't like how that felt. Don't cheer for me. Don't do that again. It was an unpleasant experience for her. It brought up negative emotions, whether she cried or stamped her foot about it. She didn't like it. So why would that be? I'm just making some guesses because she's not here for us to check in on. But when we say, way to go, you did it, she may have interpreted that as you judging her performance positively. But nonetheless, there's an evaluatory component to it that she's being watched and judged She's being judged favorably, but nonetheless, there's evaluation and judgment, and she may feel that that is pressure. She may feel like, oh my gosh, you know, you're watching me, and now um, you're cheering for me. 
are you going to expect me to do that again? What if I can't do that every time? Or I, I'm not confident that I can do that. Why did you make that little that win so public? Um, or why did you make this about you? And, you know, maybe you're sort of saying that you're my chattel and you're really proud when I did this when it was actually my win to cheer about. I cheer for me. You don't cheer for me. This is my private victory. So those are some of the things that might be going on inside the mind of a child when we do that, um, that she can't put language to, but she's wise enough to feel it. And so... I don't know which one of those exactly land because she's not here for us to check in and say, could it be, could it be, and get confirmation of that. But those are some guesses that might help you out. And so the direction to go with that is to really do a um, a check on your language and approaches to make sure that you have a clear difference differentiation between the act and the verb of praising children versus encouraging children. And there's a big difference between those two. And, and we, in Adlerian psychology, really see encouragement as being one of the fundamental parenting skills, and it gets mixed up with praise all the time. So encouragement comes from the word, the, the courage, the courage to be imperfect. It's about telling a child that right now, as they are, they're everything that they need to be. And you don't need to perform in order to have all your worth and value. And making mistakes and excelling, whether you win the trophy or whether you fail the report card, it doesn't change your worth as a person. Um, you, you have skills and you have different levels of mastery and things that you're working on and things that you you're, haven't learned yet, but never does your value as a human being ever get touched from the day you're born till the day you die. So it's a feeling of complete acceptance. And, um, you know, when that's so unquestionable, that's really where kids have the courage to stick their neck out and go tackle life, you know, because there's kind of no failing once you have that belief. And so there's lots of ways that we have to engage with our kids, showing them trust and faith and a belief in them and not feeling sorry for them and not pitying them and um, letting them have agency and keeping our focus on their efforts and their improvements and their persistence and their character traits, not their achievements and their wins and the and the trophies and the A's. That's that's the wrong focus. So efforts, improvements, trying, persistence, character traits, stick with stick with those. And, and that mistakes are just opportunities to learn. And just catch yourself whenever you're saying something that is an evaluatory judgment statement, even if it sounds like it's a positive one. <laughs> it's still judgment. You still have to have a, a ruler to which you're measuring in order to say, uh, you know, that you did a good job, right? So uh, it's uh, it's easier said than done, I know, but go check on my website and I'll put a link in the show notes. I have resources on and blog posts on encouragement versus praise and I'll, I'll put some links up so you can look into that. So there, I hope that's uh, helpful for you. If you're the parent of a tween or a teenager, I'm hosting a free online event that you're not going to want to miss. I am co-hosting this event, this webinar, with Erica M. of the Yummy Mummy Club, and the two of us together are going to be talking about the do's and don'ts of teen partying. We know that we're coming out of lockdown and the teens are very anxious to get together, and it is likely that when they gather, our minors are probably going to sneak alcohol into the scene. So whether you're hosting kids in your basement, your backyard, or your cottage, or whether you're sending your kids out to someone else's place to be supervised by parents who maybe have a different parenting attitude and style, the do's and don'ts will have you prepared to tackle this situation responsibly, proactively. So I'll put a link to the registration for the webinar in my show notes, and we'll see you August the 4th at 12 p.m. 
next questions are actually is one email that comes from one woman who's sent me through several questions about her family and the things that she's dealing with with a nine-year-old and a soon-to-be 13-year-old boy. She says they have very different personalities, of course. She sends me a smiley face because we've talked about why two siblings in a family work to differentiate themselves and want to be the anti-other one. It's a way of Believe it or not, reducing competition. They don't want to have a turf war, so they find ways to individuate and to have different areas of excellence. But she does have some questions. She said, I have to reread your book sometime, and Barbara Colorosa's too, as it's been a while. And so she's definitely on the page because Barbara Colorosa, again, who's done a podcast with me and myself, are very much aligned in our um, approaches towards parenting. So that's great. You've got two good resources there. And yes, go back and, and reread those, but let's help you today. Here's our first question. She's got fair frustrations. I find it very difficult as our kids want um, what they each deem as fair, chores, for example, but each prefer to do things. And how can I make it um, down to uh, being even right down to the second? What happens at school, parties, movies, class trips, etc.? Maybe a bike. One breaks down and the other is perfectly fine. Who gets invited for a sleepover? At what age I let them sit in the front seat? Who gets to sit in the front seat and for how long? I can keep what we spend on each of them for Christmas the same, but there may be a difference in the number of presents. I find it very frustrating, as ultimately, in the real world, things aren't always fair. My love for them is equal, but that is it. Any help would be appreciated. <laughs> so... The experience that you're having here is that your attempt at solving the problem that they're putting forth to you, that that's not fair, he only did three dishes, I, I only did one, or his vacuuming job took 20 minutes, and my unloading the dishwasher took half an hour. And so your uh, experience of seeing that unfairness and trying to counter it is to be a bean counter, as I call it. So a bean counter wants it to be fair. You're working towards, well, he got $5, so you get $5. So his chore was tw his 20 minutes, his should be 20 minutes. And you're frustrated because you kind of can't ever get there. And what I'm suggesting is throw out the bean counting altogether that your last comment is actually the truer one and the thing we want to work towards. So what you're, what we want to teach our kids is in life, it isn't fair. Sometimes there's more dishes on the day that you get dish duty and some days there's less. And sometimes you're in a grade that gets more class trips and sometimes you get stuck with the bike that has the broken chain. That is the real reality of life. And the important thing is that Rather than trying to bean count and, and, and shore everything up so it's fair, which makes everybody measuring everything, it keeps the measuring rod going. I want to eliminate the measuring rod. So I want to go from this competing and counting mentality, one-upmanship competitive mentality, to this other idea that says, you know what? We live in a family, and we have a value that everybody is loved. And there is enough in this family that we can all take care of one another and we can all get our needs met. And if we go at it with that feeling of abundance and that true sense of goodwill towards one another, we won't be so concerned about whether or not my chore took 20 minutes and his took half an hour because we kind of know that we're a family and it's going to come around. I mean, think about adults when you go out for dinner and sometimes are you the kind of person who splits the bill, right, asks for separate checks because one person's having a glass of wine and the other person's having a, a Coke or one person wants the $35 steak entree and the other person only wants a Caesar salad? Or do you say, you know what, throw it on the bill, we'll split, I'll pick up today. You grab me next time. We're going to be friends for life. Over the long run, this will work out. 
So, you know, where, where are you at around that in, in your own way that you organize life? Um, if we go from this abundance, everyone will get looked after. It's it's a closer reflection of what a team really does for one another, that you thwart your own personal needs in order for the better group to, to go on. But it also means you've always got someone to have your back. So some so someday you're going to need to call in in a favor. Someday it's going to be your bike that doesn't have the chain on and people are going to be compassionate and sympathetic to you. So your family should not be somebody who you're fighting for resources over. They should be an abundance of people that all have your back. So we need to change the the tone of the family from one that's competitive and competing to one that is more collaborative, cooperative. And one of the ways that you can do that is to put these kids in the same boat more. And I know that's um, that's a bit of a jargony term, but li- like literally, if you think, what does the same boat mean? Think of them in a rowboat. You know, if they compete and one wants to paddle to the left and the other one wants to paddle to the right, they're just going to go in circles. They'll never get to shore. They got to figure out how to work together to work that boat towards a common goal. That's what putting them in the same boat is. What happens to one happens to the other until they learn to stop competing and start cooperating for a common goal. They're not, they're going to stay in this state in your household. So for an example of putting them in the same boat, instead of saying you do the dishes Monday and he does the dishes Tuesday, I might say both of you go do the dishes. Both of you go clean the playroom. Both of you go figure out the bikes. You know, the more that they are bound together as a team and put on the same team to do a common task, they can work it out between them, you know, on on how to motivate the other person to change the way they're paddling. So if they're both told to go clean the dishes and one guy isn't doing anything, the other one's going to have to say, if they yell and scream, you know, come on, come on, you keep washing the dishes. You're, you're, you're behind. Don't just sit there. If you keep saying, you know, hey, guys, work it out, work it out, and you don't get involved in that conflict, they're going to realize being mad at somebody doesn't motivate them to help get the dishes done. And now you need your teammate. You need him motivated to do the dishes or else you're stuck doing them all on your own. Because if a parent doesn't get involved, no one is seen as like, you know, the the poor innocent victim and the other person getting abused. Leave them to solve this dilemma on their own. So which brings me to the second question that you asked me, physical fighting and constant bickering. Physical fighting has increased over the last year, probably due to proximity and COVID, which I completely agree. I work from home, and this last year, I worked hard, and with a little school and minimal activity, I don't see what happened, so don't know who started it. Not always sure how to handle it when they were young, but I tended to let them hash it out, as no one was really going to get hurt, but now they're getting stronger. Yeah. So, I think um, you've done so much here to, to catch on to this idea that um, that they do need to work it out on their own. But somehow the fact that they're still seeing each other as enemies, uh, they're still competing, they still don't have that trust and goodwill in their relationship. And, um, you know, they're fighting for holding probably their their role in the family. Why such a threat for this other? Is one of them cuter? Is, what, is one of them a mama's boy? Is one of them easygoing? And the other one's the one who usually gets the flack? Is one more physical? There's roles they've taken in the family, and somehow there is a benefit to staying in an adversarial position to one another. And usually that adversarial position has something to do with the way the parents are perceiving them. So um, even though they're getting physical, I would still stay out of it. Um, I would point when you can. If you have to step in, the important thing is to not take sides around the argument, but you could coach them. You could say, you know, do you think maybe the reason why your brother is, you know, um, calling you names like that is because he really wants to get your goat and, and maybe if you showed him that it didn't bother you, it would, wouldn't be a problem. 
Or same thing, if they get to physical fighting, you could, um, I find getting in the car and driving away because if you're anywhere in proximity, they're going to assume you're going to step in. They're only going to push each other. You know, kids don't end up in the hospital. They might fight, but one of them is going to realize, I, I better not get my brother to that level of anger because he's big enough he can punch me now. So if I'm smart, I better not be that much of an aggr- aggressive brat to him. So they will work it out, but they won't if you're watching. So uh, you have to get farther away. Or if you can separate them, you can say, hey, guys, take it outside or go to your rooms for 10 minutes and cool down or whatever that might be. Or, you know, if they're fighting over the iPad, you could say, that's it. You know, you've lost the iPad for a day and and work it out. Um, but I, I think they're, they're still, they, they somehow, the bigger problem here is not so much the little technique-y things about dealing with their fighting. They're in a competitive adversarial relationship and we've got to get them cooperating we so now I, I will go to the next question because when we look at competitive families the leadership style of the family tends to start at the top so I'm thinking in my mind well if the boys are competing what is the leadership of the family doing are mom and dad cooperative or are mom and dad and when I say cooperative what I mean is what are the rules of relating that the kids see do they see an egalitarian teamwork collaboration, cooperation in the parents, or are they in an every man for himself situation? So let's look at how mom and dad get along. So she, question three, dad is not the best role model. My husband isn't the best role model. He drinks too much, does not do his fair share around the house and doesn't work more than three to five months of the year. Anything that is a problem, challenge or upsetting, he seems to ignore. He used to be quite involved in the, with the kids activity, but it's minimal now. If they are going to do something, I plan it. We barely communicate anymore. Tried to go to counseling years ago, but he's not interested. And if there is ever a problem or challenge, I deal with it. The kids rarely go to him for anything. I can't really afford to split due to his work situation and keeping the salary in two households. He was also diagnosed with melanoma six years ago, which always looms in the back of my mind. I don't think it's feasible at this point. And since there isn't much communication, there also is not a lot of fighting. I go out and about with the kids a lot, make plans with their friends, but I'm terrified that they will think first off that this is what a relationship is and second, what a female is and that I'm the one responsible for all. How do I make sure they don't turn into him? Our family is small. My father passed away many years ago, so not like I have another good role model either. Don't expect you to fix my marriage. Just didn't want them to grow up to be him. I decided this summer, in the summer of self-sufficiency, to get them to do more around the house, like helping me clean and cook. I still don't think that's enough, but maybe it's too late. So that's a lot to unpack right there, but it does it does um, confirm my suspicion that there is not collaboration, cooperation, um, and a sense of goodwill um, at the top, that it is every man for themselves. And it's, uh, you know, just because you're not having overt conflict, you know, it's, of course, kids watching conflict isn't nice either, but they're still watching conflict in the sense that they see you're not getting along. It's just you're not overtly yelling, but you're not cooperating. Uh, it is every man for themselves. So they don't have a model of team. They're not joining a team. It, that's not what they would experience as the family rules. So I think um, you're going to have to think about how you can get teamwork happening with your partner, even if the even if the marriage doesn't work, even if the love part of the marriage doesn't work. There's still there's still an opportunity to to address these just small one by one building blocks of doing things a little bit more mutually respectfully 
Um, and uh, it sounds like he's pretty discouraged and checked out. So much like kids, if we want to re-encourage people to get engaged and to help out and to participate and to do things with the kids, you know, we don't start with criticism. We, we start on the growing edge. We start with with um, just the smallest baby steps. If he goes out and plays ball with the kids and you can just say like, oh, the, the, look, the kids really, really enjoyed that. You know, that was really fun to watch you guys out there playing around. I, I really get so much pleasure out of watching you guys hack around like that. I, you know, I hope you guys can do that more baby steps asking for his input and involvement um you know maybe he maybe he would like to actually come help you clean the fridge and things so if we just drop the criticism and try to stay really encouraging to try to engage that might be something that would be good for the boys to see but in the end you know he's responsible as well your 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 partner has some responsibility for the relationships that he'd like to have um and that includes with his boys so just make sure that you step back to make space, because I find that as much as we say, like, oh, the dads have checked out, sometimes we have to ask ourselves as moms, are we overdoing? And I, I just I say this because I am that overdoing mom, <laughs> that um, I had to keep myself very busy with university and work in order to not eclipse my partner when I was raising my girls, because I would, I would have, I, I know that enough about myself. So um, I needed to step back. So going to school meant that he had them when I on the weekends when I was away at class and traveling for business and things. And so he got to really have an opportunity to uh, to to build a relationship with them. Whereas if we were home together, I'd do, I'd do the tuck-ins. I would do, do the cutting of the toast. I would do the making, you know, making, I just would be an overtaker. That's just my nature. So I've had to work hard to sit on my hands and step back. Um, so just ask yourself, you know, would he step up more if you backed out a little bit more? You know, and of course, in the beginning, the kids would be like, oh, I want mom to do it. Mom's always done it. Why? You know, I don't really know anything about dad. But if we, if, if we take that preference, then he's never going to get an opportunity to, to build these relationships. So sometimes it has to be uncomfortable for the kids. You're like, no, I'm not available. If you'd like to do something, your dad's available to do it. And they can do it moaning. They can do it groaning. But the next thing you know, they have an experience. They have a shared experience. They actually had a laugh. Didn't go as bad as you wanted. You do that two, three, five more times. Next thing you know, you got a little track record going here. And now you got a little vibe started. So I think you got to put some energy into encouraging the those guys because you know regardless of what happens to your marriage you know those are going to be his kids for the rest of his life and it's going to be better for their development if they have some kind of relationship with their dad and so um uh don't don't check out on that one so early and then the last one here you ask me about is sneaking you said my almost teenager has become quite sneaky i have a rule no cell phones in the room at night and he has plugged in his phone case once no phone inside and just this week he took my work phone and put it in the case so i thought he had put it in the cradle for charging i have discussed why i'm disappointed with him explain why no cell phones in the room i haven't had any consequence like taking his phone away but i do worry that the sneaking behavior could get worse as he enters the teen years so the thing about sneaking is, you know, if we say, what's the usefulness of it? That's our big leering thing. How did the child creatively solve a problem? And how did that, that problem with sneaking? And it's on the non-pro-social side of life. But it's a very creative solution to getting one's way when they see no alternative. I don't know how to get my way through proper channels. Therefore, I will sneak and go around the channels. And that usually happens when a kid feels they can't get their way. It tells me that the, the distribution of power in the family is is not egalitarian and i'm not saying equal like i don't think kids have equal power to parents but we share power appropriately 
And if it's feeling hierarchical, one up, one down, that he's a peon and the orders are coming from the top, he's not going to work with you. He's not going to want to be cooperative. He's going to feel that you're dominating him with your rules. And so we need to shake up that, that dynamic and a really wonderful way to move to, to, again, less competition, more collaboration, more democracy, more mutual respect, more mutual caretaking and team building as opposed to one for all, all for one, get your needs met any way you can, sneaking, not contributing you know, some of the ways that that your husband is. And instead have family meetings. And in a family meeting, it's an opportunity to sit down and, and you, um, you're you sort of saying, we're the stakeholders of the family. We're building the kind of family we want. Let's have dialogue, discussions. I want to hear about your needs. I want to tell you about my concerns. You know, how do we get your time on your phone and I still can feel like you're getting a good night's sleep? What would that look like? And it's dialogue and co-creation and problem solving in a really respectful way so that you build up goodwill, you build up trust, and you, you're you showing that we're going to work together and that I do care about getting your needs met. So instead of having to sneak, come to me and and let's work it out. But, you know, of course, we gotta we have to be willing to work it out. You can't come to the meeting knowing, like, I don't care what they say, they're not getting their phone. We, we have to come in open-minded. We have to be a super good listener. And it's amazing. It's through the dialoguing that really works. You know, I just recently worked with a family and they were fighting at bedtime every night with a child about the same age. You know, it finally came to a big head. And really what the problem was is that the child was angry that they were given such a harsh stop time on their gaming. But the father was really like, you know, you get so much game timing. I, you know, I really just need the evening to, to relax and do my own thing. And you're cutting into my my very few amounts of time that I have to kick my feet up. And I really don't want to be having a lingering tuck-in time. And even though that had been said in the past, it had been said too much like a family, a dad setting down rules. You know, you got to go to bed. You've been all night long, blah, whatever. And when the when the frustration of the father kind of led to tears and and he was like, I, I just, you know, I get so little time. I'm so exhausted. Like I just, I, I don't want to end my day fighting with my son. And when the son was like, you know, I don't, I don't want to upset you. I, you know, I know you need time. I just, I just would like it if I had like a two minute warning or it was just a little bit of flexibility. So it didn't feel like so harsh. And the two of them heard each other for the first time. So it was through the dialogue. It was through the style of communication that they could connect and they both loved each other and wanted for one another. I want you to have a good night and a good tuck-in and a good game wrap-up. And, Dad, I love you, and I want you to be able to not be mad at me and, and have your evening, too. So you, sometimes you got to like get to that deeper level of communicating that comes from good listening and, and from good family meetings. So there you go. I hope that is helpful. Boy, we uh, reviewed quite a bit in all of that. So I... I I hope go back and, and read the books and get refreshed and and good luck with all of that and appreciate the questions. And uh, thanks. Keep sending in those questions. And we'll catch you the next time. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.